Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to be together again uh, as we uh, pick up the, the start of a new book today. We're looking forward to that. We've uh, spent quite a bit of time in our study uh, of the book of Mark on Sunday mornings, and today we're going to return back into the Old Testament, and we're going to pick up where we left off about a year ago in our study of the minor prophets. And so if you would, if you have your Bible, you could begin turning now to the book of Amos. A lot of people have trouble finding books in the minor prophets, uh, and so it might take you a little bit of time to get there. Um, and as you're doing that, let me just remind you, uh, we uh, have already studied some of the books in the Minor Prophets. Uh, we looked at the book of Hosea a while back and then followed that up with the study of the book of Joel. Uh, and today we're going to return to the third of the 12 books of the Minor Prophet. Today we're going to uh, look at the book of Amos. While you're turning there, I'll remind you just of a couple things. There are uh, books of prophecy in our Bibles, some of which are called uh, major prophets, and then there are those that are called the minor prophets. Uh, the major prophets are those books that are a little longer in length, not always, but typically a little longer in length, uh, and the minor prophets are those books that are a little shorter uh, in length. Uh, those books were written uh, during a, a series of times or, or periods of times which were in reference to the, the exiles. And so we talk about it a lot. We know that there, are, there was, I should say, the Assyrian captivity when the people of Israel were taken into exile. And then there was also the Babylonian captivity, uh, where primarily the people of Judah were taken into exile. And the, the books of the prophets, whether it be Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel or Hosea or Amos or any of those, they were written either before those captivities, during those captivities, or at the close of those captivities. And so we call them pre-exilic, exilic, and post-exile or post-exilic. The book that we're going to be digging into now, this book of Amos, is actually one of those that was pre-exilic. It was written about 40 years before the Assyrians entered into the land of Israel, into the northern kingdom, and took the people captive and actually brought them out of the nation uh, and uh, into captivity. And so we're going to be digging into that. Well, I've stalled as long as I could. You should have found the book by now. Uh, hopefully you looked at your table of contents if you were having trouble. And so let's open up our time today as well as our time in this book uh, just with a word of prayer that the Lord might bless our time together and speak to each of our hearts. Father, we do want to learn from you. And Lord, we don't want to just learn some head knowledge and and leave here having uh, academically been trained, but Lord, we want to come into your presence. We want to meet with you. We want to hear your voice, and we want to learn from your holy word. Lord, you tell us in your word that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching us and correcting us and training us and rebuking us. And, and so, Lord, we want your word to be useful once more this morning. Lord, that you would minister to the deep places of our hearts and you'd root out wickedness and sin. And Lord, that you would instruct us in the way of righteousness. So bless your word today and this entire study we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now the book of Amos, it begins by introducing us to a number of things in the first verse. It, it introduces us to the namesake of the book. That's how we learn the name Amos. It gives us a little bit of background as to where Amos was from, 
And it also provides us with a little bit of a time frame from which he ministered. And so verse 1, we read this. It says, Now the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, Amos chapter 1, verse 1, it's one of those verses that we often read through quickly. We don't, we don't pay much attention to it. And we fail to take notice of some of the things that God is trying to communicate to us through that verse. I think, however, in, in an effort to really understand sort of the full context of the book, I think it would be good for us just to take a few minutes to slow down here and take notice of what it is the Lord might be attempting to communicate. Number one, the first thing that we take notice of is the time period in which Amos prophesies. If we, again, if we look at that first verse, look at the latter portion of the verse. It says that Amos prophesied during the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. He also makes mentions to an earthquake, which I'll talk about in a moment. And so from the opening verse of the book, we learn about this King Uzziah and this King Jeroboam. Now, let me remind you just real quickly. That when King Solomon, so there was three kings in Israel, uh, when they had come into the promised land, they had a king appointed for them. There was King Saul, he was replaced by King David, and he was replaced by his son, King Solomon. Upon the death of Solomon, the nation went through a civil war and the nation split. The upper half uh, included 10 of the tribes of Israel, and it continued to go by the name Israel. The lower portion of the promised land uh, would go by the name of the, the largest of the tribes there, which was the tribe of Judah. And so right around the year 950 BC, the land of Israel was divided into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom, again called Israel, and a southern kingdom, which was known as Judah. And that's what Amos is, in some regards, he's assuming we understand that. And he says this, that he prophesied during the days of Uzziah, who was down in, in Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, who was up in the northern kingdom. He provides us with that. Now, we know a few things about those dates. We know Uzziah reigned over the kingdom of Judah in the years 790 to 739 BC, so quite a length of time. Uh, almost uh, 40 years or 50 years or so there, that he ruled in that area. We know that Jeroboam, that he ruled uh, roughly between the years 793 to 753. Now, one thing about Jeroboam, there were two Jeroboams that ruled over the kingdom of Israel. This is the second. So he's commonly referred to as Jeroboam the second. And you'll notice here how Amos points out who his dad was to differentiate him from the first of the Jeroboams. And so you put all of those pieces together. He also makes mention, by the way, of an earthquake. And archaeologists, they, they kind of narrow that down to approximately the year 760 B.C. And so you put all that together, plus the time period of these two kings and the date of this earthquake, and we can deduce that uh, Amos wrote this book sometime in the early 760s B.C., or in the very late 750s BC, somewhere 760, 61, maybe 759, 758, something to that effect. Now, in and of itself, 
Who cares what year it actually was? But since we have an understanding of the time period, what was it like in the late 750s in, in uh, Israel, that's when it becomes important. Because we know that in the late 750s in the land of Israel, uh, what life was like in the land of Israel. And that's going to influence the type of ministry that Amos is going to have. And so it's important for us to, to learn that. I'll come back to that in a moment. You'll also learn in verse 1 the kind of the mission of Amos. It says there, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, and then it says, which he saw concerning Israel. Amos is going to have a particular ministry to the northern kingdom, which he saw concerning Israel. So despite the fact that he was from Tekoa, as it says in the verse there, Tekoa was a small uh, farming-type village uh, outside of Jerusalem uh, in uh, the area of Judah. And so he's a guy from Judah, from this small little tiny village, who's going to go to the northern kingdom. We're going to learn later that he is sent to one of the largest cities in the northern kingdom, a town called Bethel. And that's where he's going to deliver the message that God gave to him as a prophet. God's going to take him from his own land and his own area of comfortability, and he's going to deposit him somewhere completely different. Now, I mentioned what life was like in Israel. In 760 BC, Israel was experiencing a great affluence, luxury, and unfortunately, moral laxity. And we're going to see that throughout this book. The 760s, the 750s, they were a period of affluence and wealth, unlike really anything the nation of Israel, had, the northern kingdom, had experienced before and would experience after. Let me tell you sort of how that came about. Right around the year 800 BC, so maybe about 40 years or so before Amos is uh, prophesying here, and about 10 years before Jeroboam II became the king of Israel, Israel was pretty much a stagnated country um, economically and things like that. There was a kingdom to its north, the kingdom of Syria, and the kingdom of Syria and the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, they continued to have sort of this strife between them. There were regular skirmishes that were going on between them. And those skirmishes and all the money that was spent going toward that and all the attention that had to go toward that pretty much limited both of those nations from investing into their economy and to trade and to other things and really developing as a nation. That all changed, however, around the year 800 B.C. Because around 800 B.C., the, the nation that was north of Syria, so you remember you have Israel, and then north of them is Syria, and then north of them was a nation that was called Assyria. And Assyria attacked Syria and essentially conquered, uh, essentially conquered and defeated Syria. And fortunately for the Israelites at that time, the Assyrians weren't interested in going any further south in 800 B.C. And so the territory of Syria pretty much remained uh, wide open for Israel to move into and to begin to occupy and in some cases actually acquire. More importantly, it opened up key trade routes between the land of Assyria, which is just south of what today we know of Iraq and uh, Iran and other nations like that, 
and all the way down through Israel down to northern Africa and nations like Egypt and today Libya and other places like that. And so those changes and those new openings of trade routes and so on, it ushered into the northern kingdom a period of materialistic prosperity such as Israel had never known before and, as I said later, would never know again. Now, what's really interesting to note, and this might be one of those things you just sort of file away until later when we come back to it in our study of the book, the common understanding of the people of Israel at that time for the reason for that prosperity was, look how, look how much God loves us. Look how he's blessing us. Look how pleased he is with us that he would give us all of these things and all of this wealth. And that's a common belief. When everything is going well and wonderful and your bank account is filled, a lot of people think, well, God must really like me and approve of the way I'm living my life. What we're going to see in our study of Amos, it was exactly the opposite. God was about to pronounce judgment upon the nation of Israel, and he was going to bring judgment upon the nation of Israel because of the sin that had developed in their land as a result of the ease that came with all that money and the covetousness which developed because of all of that money and their lust for all manner of wickedness. On the surface, things looked wonderful in the nation of Israel, but below the surface, there was a great spiritual decay which would ultimately end up bringing God's judgment even upon his own people. And we might even say especially upon his own people. Now the overarching theme of the book of Amos is this theme of judgment. You could summarize the book of Amos this way. It is a warning to God's people by his prophet Amos that they should repent of their sin and some of the sins that we're going to see um, called out, greed, immorality, selfishness, and oppression of others. And so Amos is sent by God to warn the people to repent of that sin and to seek God and his law and that they would return to begin to obey God's law. And if they would do that, perhaps the Lord would hear their repentance and he would relent. And if they would not do that, then they would find themselves under the heavy hand of God's judgment, which would bring about this day of darkness and great sorrow that Amos is going to speak of. That's the overarching theme of the book, which we'll see kind of weaved throughout the book. Now, there's a second theme which emerges as well. We'll call it a sub-theme. And that is the way in which the book speaks powerfully against social injustice in a society, which is certainly a very timely message because we hear so much being spoken of about social injustice in the United States. Well, we'll look at it, what it is, uh, how does God feel about it, and so on. And here in this book, you're going to see sort of this God speaking out against social injustice and the deceptiveness of formalized religion that... You can kind of do whatever you want as long as you go to church on a Sunday morning. Everything is fine. Well, God's going to speak into that area as well. And as he does, uh, either of those issues will uh, tie them into our messages as well. Let me make one final point of introduction here before we begin uh, to really dig into this book. And that is in relation to who is this man, Amos. So we know that Amos is the prophet here, but who was Amos? Verse 1 tells us these are the words of Amos. Amos is only mentioned in the Bible in the book of Amos itself. 
Nowhere else do we have any information about him, no comments about him, anything like that. So everything that we learn about Amos is from this particular book, and we actually learn quite a bit about this guy. First off, as is so often the case with biblical names, the name of the person is so often indicative of the calling that God is going to place upon that person and upon their life. And so it's interesting to take note that the name Amos means uh, burden or burden bearer. And so despite the fact that Amos was not even born yet, and despite the fact that he was not born to be a prophet or he was raised by prophets or anything like that, uh, as the book will later go on to tell us, his parents, somehow God moved in his parents to name him uh, a name that would be indicative of his calling. And so again, he's called Amos, which means burden bearer, because this fella is going to bear the burden of having to bring the message of God's coming judgment to the northern kingdom. That's God's chosen people. And he's going to have to bear that burden of carrying that message to those people. That's the first thing we learn about this man. The second thing that we learn about Amos is, as it says, that he was among the shepherds of Tekoa. Now, I mentioned earlier, Tekoa was a small village. It was about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a bustling city, but Tekoa was primarily a village of fields, a village of farmers and shepherds and things like that. Again, as I mentioned, Amos was not a prophet. He didn't grow up as one, I should say. His dad wasn't a prophet. Amos didn't go off when he finished up high school to the school, best school of the land that he could prepare to become a prophet or anything like that. Amos was a shepherd. Some of your Bible versions are going to say that he was a herdsman, as it's sometimes translated. He was a shepherd from a small, little back country village uh, of Judah. We might call that today, I'm not sure if it's appropriate, but uh, nonetheless, we might call it a hick town or something like that. Also interesting to note is that even the word that he chooses to use to describe himself is kind of indicative of the type of person he was and the way that he saw himself. And so again, he calls himself a shepherd, but he doesn't use the typical word that was used for shepherd or is used for shepherd in the Bible. The typical word that is used is ra'ah, uh, and you find it in the Old Testament. David is called a ra'ah, the Lord himself. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He is called a ra'ah. Amos, on the other hand, he uses the word noked. And the word noked literally means a sheep raiser. And so there's, the word shepherd, you know, God is called shepherd. It kind of rose to this, this level of having significance and meaning. Amos doesn't even use that word to describe himself. He just simply says, I'm a sheep raiser. It seems as if Amos is attempting to communicate that the message he wants us to understand about himself is that I'm a nobody. I'm nobody special, um, no one that you should be looking up to as, you know, come follow me or something like that. I, I didn't come from uh, any background. Again, Amos 7.14, he says, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman. I was a dresser of sycamore figs, but the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Amos, a man with no formal education, from a backcountry hick town of Judah, makes his way to a foreign land 
to preach to the people of Bethel. Again, as we'll learn later, the most sophisticated of the towns of the northern kingdom. How ironic that God would send him. And he sends him so that he can confront the intellectual and the spiritual elite of the land regarding their sin and the way in which they lead other people into sin. God takes a nobody, a nobody that was available, and God uses that nobody. And I think that's the first lesson that we can learn from this particular book. Maybe it's the first takeaway that we can apply to our lives as we get up from wherever it is that we're watching this and we begin to make our way back into the world and interact with other people. The first lesson is this, is that God can and so often does use the insignificant in this world to accomplish his purposes. And so while it's certainly true that God sometimes uses the great of this world, as you go through your study of the scriptures, it's more often the case that he uses the insignificant of this world. And he does so in order that the glory would go to him and to him alone, and not to the men and the women that are serving him. Paul the Apostle would write in the New Testament, he would say, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The Lord loves to use what the world would call foolish to confound the wise. And so what does this mean for us here this morning? Well, it simply means this. It means that he is able to use every one of us that are tuning in to watch this particular message this morning. And we see that, again, throughout the Bible. We see it throughout history. God using regular folks like us to accomplish things with great eternal significance. God does great things through insignificant people. He does great things through insignificant groups of people, whether that's a church or a ministry or a particular family in a community. He does great things through those people in order that the honor and the glory that is due him alone will go to him alone. And so if you've ever wondered if God could use a person like yourself, the answer is yes. As you make yourself available to the Lord in humility, as Amos did, you'll see him work through your life to accomplish his purposes. That's good news for us. Now we go on from there, we take a sip of water. So if anyone has some water, go ahead and get it. We go on from there and we read, Amos now has a message. He has sort of this commissioning. He knows where he's supposed to go. He knows what he's supposed to say. say. He leaves uh, his little village there in southern Judah, and he makes his way up to the northern kingdom. We find out later he goes to the city of Bethel. Verse 2 tells us, it says, And Amos said, The Lord roars from Zion, and he utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel it withers, Mount Carmel. As a shepherd out in the fields, Amos knew the sound of a roaring lion. He'd been out there, he heard them, they would have threatened his sheep, no doubt. He would hear them in the distance, and so he'd get his sheep uh, as far away from them as he could. And he says here, the Lord roars from Zion. Now that's not designed to be a cause for great joy 
for those whom the Lord was roaring against. I remember we uh, have hit the safaris uh, on, on a number of occasions when we made our way uh, over to Kenya to visit with the Simpsons. And one of our hopes is throughout the process, I hope we get to see a lion while we're out here. And part of the reason why we're hoping we get to see a lion while we're out there is because we're sitting in a van uh, protected from the lion that is out there. And so we're hoping to see them. We're hoping to hear them. We want to hear the roar of the lion. Uh, and so we might think, wow, that's so cool. The Lord roared from Zion. This was not a cause for joy for the people who, of whom Amos was going to speak. It was to be actually a cause of great concern. If you've ever been to a zoo or if you've ever gone down a great adventure to their particular safari, maybe you've heard a lion roar inside of its cage or on the other side of that big fence that they put up. And you think, man, that's really cool. Listen to how loud it is and so on. You would have a very different response if that lion was outside of the cage and staring, standing near you and staring you down. And that's the response that Amos is trying to elicit here when he says that the Lord roars from Zion and he utters his voice from Jerusalem. Now, Zion is another name for Jerusalem. So he's speaking about the same place. It's some, a little bit poetic there, the way in which he, he speaks. And Jerusalem was the place where the Lord had set his name uh, to dwell, set him, uh, it was his dwelling place in a special way uh, in the world. That's the place where the temple itself would reside. And the Lord's presence would reside there in the, the most holy place or the holy of holies. And so it's natural that he would roar then from that place, that he would utter his voice in judgment against others. And Amos says that. He says that the Lord speaks from Zion. He speaks from Jerusalem. And even in saying that, Amos is reminding the northern kingdom that, that Zion, that Jerusalem is the place where the, the center of true worship was to be. I mentioned earlier Solomon. I mentioned earlier the, the civil war that caused the nation of Israel to divide into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. That took place around 950 BC when Solomon died. We learn in 1 Kings chapter 12 that one of Solomon's replacement, the new king of the northern kingdom, was actually the first man that was named Jeroboam. And we learn in 1 Kings chapter 12 that Jeroboam was fearful that the hearts of his people, this new kingdom that he is called to lead, that they would be drawn back to the southern kingdom after going down to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the many festivals that the Jewish people had. And so Jeroboam, this new king of the northern kingdom, his plan was then to prevent the people to, from going down to Jerusalem was to set up alternative places where the people could go and worship. And so he set up the high place there of Bethel. He set up the high place of Dan. A little bit later on in history, they would set up the place of Gilgal. These would be alternative places in the northern kingdom where they could go and they could worship. And they also, we learned, they worshiped other gods in those places as well, the golden calves that were erected. His response to this whole thing was, come up with new places of worship, change things altogether. And Amos is making reference to that when he draws attention to the true place where God was to be worshipped, was Jerusalem. And that's where the Lord was going to roar uh, from Zion and utter uh, his judgment from Jerusalem, the true place where the Lord dwelled. Now, beginning in verse 3, we begin to see these judgments. And this is going to go all the way to chapter 7. 
And so we'll have a number of different studies looking at these particular judgments. Amos is going to um, proceed with the key theme of this book. You'll notice in verse 3 that the first judgment is going to be against, as it says there, the city of Damascus. If you skip down for a moment in chapter 1, look at verse 6. It'll be the, city, the region of Gaza. A little further in verse 9, it's going to be the city of Tyre. In verse 11, it'll be the kingdom of Edom. In verse 13, it'll be the people of the Ammonites. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, it's going to be the kingdom of Moab. And we see that in the first verse of, the, of chapter 2. And those are the various nations that surrounded uh, as much as possible because a portion of the nation is, has water on it. But these are the various nations that surround the kingdoms of Judah and Israel. And we have a little map here that I'm going to throw up to sort of give you a sense or give you an idea of those various colored places that are surrounding the land of Israel. And you see to the north, it's sort of that brown color, and down to the south is the red and maybe the yellowy or green color that is there. All of these nations are the ones that are surrounding the land of Israel. And Amos is being sent to deliver from the Lord a message regarding coming judgment, first against those surrounding nations, and then as we're going to see the next time we're together in chapter 2, against the kingdom of Judah and primarily against the kingdom of Israel. But he begins with Damascus, and so we'll pick up in verse 3. It says, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with thresh, threshing sledges of iron. And so I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of, en, of Aven. And him who holds the scepter of Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Ker, says the Lord. Now, before we consider the specifics uh, of when the judgment would occur and what the judgment would look like against uh, Damascus, let's first take notice of that phrase there that says, for three transgressions and for four. And the reason why I want to take notice of that is because it's going to be repeated again in verse 6, verse 9, verse 11, verse 13, and then in chapter 2, verse 1, verse 4, and verse 6. And so in verse 3, it says, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four. And that's going to be, if you will, a formula that will introduce God's announcement of judgment against each one of those nations that I drew your attention to just a few minutes ago. For three transgressions of Damascus, of Gaza, of Tyre, of Edom, and so on and so forth. And it's a phrase, it's an idiom, if you will, that is not designed to mean that each of these nations were given three chances and then on the fourth chance, uh, God disciplined them. Rather, as I said, it's an idiom that has the idea of sin upon sin upon sin. And we can go on, upon sin and upon sin. It's an expression that's attempting to communicate because this people continue to sin, I will bring judgment upon them. And so this phrase is communicating this idea that each of these nations had continued again and again and again in sin, and now God was going to bring a judgment upon that nation. 
Now, we hear about the judgment upon that nation, but the fact that they sinned upon sin upon sin upon sin, that implies, that reveals that God had been repeatedly dealing with these nations with patience and with long-suffering, desiring that those nations would come to the place of repentance. But when that repentance fails to come, when the cup of their wickedness had finally been filled and could not take any more in the cup itself, then judgment had to be meted out. God is patient. God is long-suffering. But as the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2, that kindness, that forbearance, its purpose is to lead us to repentance. And when it fails to accomplish that purpose, the only thing that remains is his judgment. We read in Romans 2.2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. That's the meaning of this somewhat poetic statement for three transgressions and for four that we have repeated on multiple occasions in these couple of chapters here. And so addressing Damascus, the Lord through Amos says, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. He then goes on, you'll notice it says, because that's the reason. He then goes on to list the reason for that judgment. And again, this isn't the only reason for God's judgment. It is, if you will, it's the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. It was that thing that put them over the limit. Now, we don't have a precise historical incident that we can point to in the Bible or, or point to uh, through historians as to what this particular event was, but we can piece some pieces of the puzzle together. We can look at the metaphor uh, that Amos uses here. The reason Damascus was to be judged was because it had come against Gilead. Now, Gilead was a city within the territory of the tribe of Gad. Uh, it was a city of the people of Israel. Uh, excuse me, not Gad. For, cross that out. All right, it had nothing to do with Gad. It was a city within the territory of one of the northern tribes of Israel. Today, it's what we would call the Golan Heights, uh, which I have to imagine every one of us have heard about. It's in the news so frequently. And so this little area there of Gilead uh, was attacked by the people of Damascus. And the people here of Damascus, they came against them with such destruction that it's likened to sort of this deep plow that dug into the ground and tore the ground all up. It calls it a threshing sledge of iron that had been run through the land. So whatever the details of the attack were, we don't actually know. We have nowhere that we can go and we can really look at. What we can ascertain is that it went beyond what was necessary, even in warfare. And as a result, Damascus was going to be judged for what today we might call wartime atrocities. And so Amos continues, he says, and so I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael. Now Hazael was a ninth century king of the area of Damascus. Uh, he says, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad was another ninth century king uh, of Damascus. Verse 5 says, I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants of the valley and him who holds the scepter of Beth Eden and the people of Syria, Damascus was the major city in Syria, shall go into exile to Kerr. Now that event where the people of Syria would go into exile to Kerr, 
That's recorded for us in our Bibles. And so you can look there if you're interested in 2 Kings chapter 16. And there in 2 Kings chapter 16, what we learn is that the king of Assyria went up against the people of Syria, Damascus being the major city, don't forget, and they took the city and they carried away the people into captivity. Again, you can read it in 2 Kings 16. One verse that kind of explains it, 2 Kings 16, 9, it says, the king of Assyria went up against Damascus. He took it and he carried its people captive to Kerr, just as Amos said that they would do. Amos's first pronouncement of judgment is against the city of Damascus. Now, the second region that Amos addresses is the Philistine city of Gaza. And the Philistine city of Gaza is located on the Mediterranean coast. It's in the south, um, southwest, if you will, of the kingdom of Judah. So Damascus is all the way up to the top uh, in the south or the northeast corner of Israel, uh, the kingdom of Israel. Here now Gaza is down in the southwest um, corner of Israel on the Mediterranean coast. And this is what we read, starting in verse 6. It says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it shall devour her strongholds. I'll cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod, and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I'll turn my head against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Now, we have this map. I'm not sure if we put it up yet, but you see the map there. You can see uh, where Gaza is located. Remarkably, Israel continues to have difficulties with this region of the world and problems that emanate from that small little parcel of land today. We refer to it as the Gaza Strip. Uh, you'll hear on the news bombs that are um, being launched um, from the Gaza Strip. It even mentions the city of Ashdod today that's mentioned here uh, in our passage and how they'll launch their bombs or, or whatever into the desert area of Israel. Remarkably, they continue to have trouble with this part of the world. And again, Amos uses the phrase that he used earlier in chapter 1. He says, for three transgressions, this time of Gaza, and for four. And he goes on and he makes the case for the way in which the cup of Gaza's rebellion had reached full measure, and thus God's judgment was about to be meted out on them as well. This time, the straw that breaks the camel's back is that they carry into exile, notice, a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. And so because Gaza came against God's people, sold them into slavery to the kingdom of Edom, God pronounces that he would bring judgment against Gaza. And then he also mentions three other Philistine cities, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Ekron. God's going to bring judgment against the land of the Philistines. Now, one thing I want you to take notice of, the crime of the, these people here, these Philistines, was not that the soldiers that had been defeated, the Israeli soldiers, Israelite soldiers that had been defeated, were enslaved and after battle. That was actually quite normal. It was a standard practice. What was not standard was the way in which the Philistines now used their temporary superiority over the kingdom of Judah, over the kingdom of Israel. And you'll, you'll notice there, they enslaved the whole people. 
That is, they enslaved the soldiers, but also the civilians. They enslaved the men and also the women. They enslaved the adults as well as the children. No distinction. And the Lord took notice of their wartime atrocities, just like he did with Damascus, and the cruelty that they were showing. And just as he did with Damascus, he would judge them for that as well. Notice also, they didn't even need these slaves, as if anybody needs to enslave another human being, but they didn't even need these slaves because they sold off all of these people to someone else. So all they did this for, they violated, if you will, sort of the standards of war, they did so primarily just for money, a means for them to profit. And the Lord saw it, and he took notice of it, and he judged them for it. And the nations of the world, including the United States, would be wise to take notice of the way that God responds to national injustice as he does in this passage here. If you look at verse 9, it says, it, it introduces us to Tyre. Amos says this, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom. And they did not remember the covenant of the brotherhood. And so I will send fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. Now Tyre is a city uh, of Lebanon. We still have uh, a nation in the world today that is called Lebanon. The city of Tyre is now just a historical, archaeological site. Uh, but we still have the country of Lebanon located. Uh, it's on the northern uh, it's north of Israel. It's also on the coast. It's a relatively small country. It's on the coast of the Mediterranean. And Tyre was a part of the empire or the people that were known as the Phoenicians. And you may have learned that somewhere uh, in your history studies and so on. And Amos now, he pronounces a judgment upon these individuals because like the Philistines did down in Gaza, so too the people of Tyre, as you can see in the verse there, they delivered up a whole people to Edom. That is, they, they sold into slavery soldiers and civilians, men and women, older folks and the children, and so on. And they sold them into the Edomites. Amos adds additionally, he says, and they did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. That's kind of a poetic way of saying they did not remember the treaty that they had signed. Israel and Tyre previously had a treaty during the days of Solomon. So maybe 200 and some years before this, King Solomon of the nation of Israel and King Hiram uh, of the area of Tyre, they had a brotherhood, a covenant of brotherhood, one with the other, a treaty with each other. They worked interchangeably one with the other. Um, Hiram provided so much of the lumber that would be used to build the temple itself, primarily because of the relationship he had with King Solomon. And now, 200 years later, this people, their new king, whomever it might be, they don't remember that covenant of brotherhood. They mistreat the people of Israel. They not only defeat them in war, but they take men and women, young, old people and young people, soldier and civilian, away into captivity. And the Lord takes notice of it, and you'll notice it says uh, that he judges them. You see that it says he judges them. Amos goes on from there, verse 14, he says, For three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brother 
with the sword, and he cast off all pity. And his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. And so I will send a fire, verse 12, upon Teman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Now, Edom, we, we just came from Tyre, which is all the way up in the north on the uh, western coast there of northern Israel. Now we go all the way back down again to the southeastern border of Israel, and that's where the Edomites were located. Now, the people of Edom, they were the descendants of a man named Esau, who you might recall was the twin brother of Jacob, who had his name changed to Israel. And so the Israelites and the Edomites were actually relatives with one another. They were distant cousins with one another. And sadly, as we study our scriptures, we learn that Jacob and Esau did not have a very good relationship, one with the other, during their lifetimes. And that animosity, it continued to manifest itself 500 years, 700 years, 1,000 years later in each of the nations that came from those two men. And you'll notice what Amos points out here. He says that Edom pursued his brother with the sword and he cast off pity. Again, that brother whom Amos is referring to is the people of Israel whether that be from the northern tribe or the southern tribe, it's the Jewish people that it's speaking of. And we have repeated references in the scripture of the way in which the Edomites either warred against their Jewish, the Jewish people or even how they simply refused to show them an act of kindness. For instance, in the book of Numbers, where the Israelites asked to just sort of pass through the land, they weren't going to do anything, weren't going to bother anything, but it sure would cut a lot of time off their trip and how the Edomites refused uh, them from passing through even the land. So plenty of references to warring against the Edomites, uh, even a lack of kindness from the Edomites. And even in this first chapter of the book of Amos, we've already seen two examples where they purchased uh, the Jewish people into slavery. They purchased from other people the Jews that they might enslave them in their nation. Not a very good relationship between the peoples. And like the nations before, Edom also will be judged. The Lord says, so I will send a fire upon Temin. Now, Temin was sort of a leading clan among the Edomites. So they're mentioned. And then it goes and he says, I will devour the strongholds of Basra. Basra, Basra was the capital city of Edom, ancient Edom. And so mention is made of the judgment that was going to come upon its people, even its most prominent people, and the capital city there because of the way in which they mistreated the Jewish people. Verse 13 goes on. It says, For three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their own border. And so I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah and it should devour her strongholds with, with shouting on the day of battle with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind, and their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. We'll put the map up once more. You'll, you'll notice just to the right of Israel, to the east of Israel, across the Jordan River, it would be the land of the Ammonites, the kingdom of Ammon. And the Ammonites' treatment of the Jewish people, God's chosen people, was especially heinous. As we read, it says, they ripped open the pregnant women that they might enlarge their border. And it mentions the city of Gilead where this took place. This is the second time the city of Gilead is mentioned. Gilead 
was a region. It was an area of land. It wasn't one little city, but it was an area of land that had been apportioned to the tribe of Gad by Moses, uh, just prior to the children of Israel entering into the promised land, when they went in under the leadership of Joshua. And you may recall, if you're familiar with that time of the, the Jews wandering out of, uh, out of slavery in Egypt, wandering through the wilderness, about to enter into the promised land, you may recall that there were two and a half tribes, we'll just say there were three tribes that determined that the land outside of the promised land was good enough for them that they didn't need to go any further to enter into the land that God had promised them five, six hundred years earlier. Those three tribes were the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the tribe of Manasseh. Gilead, as I mentioned a moment ago, is found in the midst of that tribe of Gad. And again, this is the second time that Gilead is attacked by one of the surrounding nations. And this time, the attack is most especially barbaric. Again, it says, they ripped open pregnant women, took a knife, and cut across the belly of pregnant women, and killed both the baby and, no doubt, the mom as well. And why did they do it? Well, it says that they might enlarge their border so that they could acquire some additional land, heinous, barbaric, just so that they might acquire some more land. Speaking on behalf of the Lord, notice what Amos says. He says, I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah. The capital city of Ammon was Rabbah. And so he makes reference to that. And he says, and I will devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle and with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind. Because again, the Lord saw and he took notice and he judged them accordingly. And again, as I said earlier, the nations of the world, even to this day, would take notice as well. The Lord sees and he takes notice. We have one more people of the surrounding nations, and this is the people of Moab. And so we move on to chapter 2, verse 1 says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. And so I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Kiriath. And Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting, and the sound of the trumpet. And I will cut off the ruler from the mit its midst, and I will kill all of its princes with him, says the Lord. Moab is the sixth and final kingdom of the surrounding nations uh, from the Jewish people that Amos addresses with these, uh, these oracles of judgment. This time again, it's Moab. Moab, uh, who along with Ammon, or from the area of the present-day kingdom of Jordan, are just to the eastern border of the land of Israel. And interestingly, what we see with Moab, the final straw for Moab was cruelty, but it wasn't so much against the people of Israel, but it was for the cruel way in which they uh, dealt with the king of Edom after they had defeated that king in battle. It says, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. God indicated, uh, excuse me, he indicted the Ammonites for their treatment of the not yet born while they were still in the womb of their mothers. And here now he indicts the Moabites for the lack of respect for the dead and their desecration of the corpse of the king of Edom. And you think about it and you wonder, is that the worst thing the nation had ever done? It probably wasn't. Uh, 
but it was the final straw that broke that camel's back and filled up the measure of the cup of God's wrath against them. And so, as we read, as we read, they were judged. It says, I'll send fire upon Moab. I'll devour the strongholds of Kiriath. Moab will die amid roar, uh, uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet, and the ruler and the princes will be cut off. Now, as you look at each of these kingdoms, and, and you work your way around the area of Israel there, and you look at Damascus, and you look at Gaza, and, and you look at Tyre, and you look at Edom, and you look at the Ammonites, and you look at the Moabites, and so on, we see that there's this common denominator, this thread that kind of weaves itself through each one of these pronounces by Amos. And that is that each of them involves a sin against the humanity of a neighboring people. Now, none of them are specific violations of any particular provision of the Old Testament law of God. Rather, what they are and what they continue to be, even to this day, are a violation, if you will, of the basic code of human behavior. A code that is written into the hearts of all people and that is expected of all people. And you'll notice God holds them, even unbelieving pagan nations, he holds them responsible for their unmerciful behavior, which violates that basic code. And he holds them responsible because the Bible is clear. All flesh will one day stand before God to be judged. The Apostle Paul, he tells us in Romans 2, he says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by that law. And so whether a person or a people's, a nation, whether their sin is against the basic law of God that is written on the heart of every man, or it is against the written law of God that's preserved for us through his word, the Bible, either way, all flesh will stand before him to whom we must give an account, as the author of the book of Hebrews has told us. And that's a very sobering thought. And it should be a very sobering thought. And frankly, it's a very scary thought, or it can be a very scary thought as well. But even with that, even as we begin now our study of the book of Amos, and it's a book, it's about judgment. It's not, I, I can't imagine a lot of you, I can't wait to get to church today. We're going to study about judgment. Uh, it's, it's not one of those sorts of things that we get excited to talk about here. But even as we study this book, which is about judgment, and we think about the judgment of God, it's a sobering thought, but it can be a scary thought. But it does not have to be a scary thought. And we know that it does not have to be a scary thought because Christ Jesus came into this world to take upon himself the judgment that each one of us deserves to have meted out against ourselves. And so this morning, I want to close with these words from the Apostle John. John wrote this in the first epistle of his. He said, my dear children, I write to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. My friend, if you're watching today and you've never dealt with your problem of sin. And by that, what I mean is the consequences of your sin. The consequences we see being meted out on each one of these nations that we've considered this morning. 
And if you've never come to Jesus Christ in faith, placing your trust in his work on the cross, then I want to encourage you today to do that. I want to encourage you with these words. The Lord loves you and the Lord has made a way for you to come into his presence despite your sin. But your sin must be dealt with. And it will either be dealt with on the day of your judgment, as it was with these nations, or it will be dealt with on the day that Jesus was judged on the cross on Calvary's hill. But one way or another, sin must be judged. Let's judge the one that loves us, that gave his life for us. And I want to encourage you, if you've never done that, turn your heart to the Lord. Ask him to forgive you of your sins, to cleanse you. Place your trust in what he has done as he's gone before you as your advocate. And the Lord will welcome you into his presence. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we, do, uh, we pray for anyone that might be watching. Lord, that is uh, looking at some of these things and, and thinking about where they are in their relationship with you. And they realize that they're not in a good place with you. Lord, I pray that you would just minister into their heart by your Holy Spirit, that they can turn to Christ and that they can receive Christ for the forgiveness of their own sins and be brought into right relationship with you. Lord, I pray for those that are watching this morning for myself, Lord, that have a relationship with you. And Lord, even as we're looking at all these surrounding nations, the tendency of our heart might be, yeah, give it to them, they deserve it. And Lord, I pray that you would give us a, a heart attitude of if it wasn't for the grace of God, there we would go as well. And so, Lord, use your word in our hearts to enlarge our hearts in gratefulness for all that you have done and all that you are. And bless your word this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.